This is the Lightning Junkies Podcast with your host, Chaz. On this episode of the podcast, we have Alex Gladstein talking about privacy and the Lightning Network. That's definitely not a very descriptive title, but we go into the topic of privacy. We try to explore the different ways that Lightning can help, the reasons why that Lightning may not be able to help, and, you know, the whole COVID-19's effect on privacy and things like that. Now, I recorded this last week, and it feels like it happened 10,000 years ago because so many things have happened since then. I wish we had more time to add more of Alex's current feelings on what is going on because so much has changed and so much has happened since just last Wednesday. Just a quick reminder that if you would like to support the Lightning Junkies podcast, you can do so by going to lightningjunkies.net forward slash support. You can follow us on the various podcasting platforms that are out there. You can donate Bitcoin and Bitcoin over the Lightning Network. And as well, you can even donate us some dirty, dirty fiat. With all that being said, I think we should go ahead and jump into this episode. like to go ahead and welcome Alex to the Lightning Junkies podcast. How are you doing today, Alex? I'm doing well. Thanks. It's a good day to talk about Bitcoin privacy. We've got a pretty seismic event happening where some very early coins have been moved due to the fact that they were mined. No one seems to know who did it. And I think that just speaks to how interesting mining is as an acquisition process that provides pretty close to anonymity which is really neat. It's going to be interesting to see if this person gets docs because if they don't, then I really think that adds to Bitcoin's case without even getting into Lightning that it offers pretty good privacy. Yeah, absolutely. I would probably agree with that. And I think we're going to get into that quite a bit with the topics that I have laid out here in front of me. Would you mind terribly though, if we take a step back and talk about you for a moment before we jump into all the privacy and Bitcoin related stuff? Sure. My name's Alex. I am the chief strategy officer of the human Rights Foundation, and I'm an advocate for privacy, for individual rights, for the shrinking of the mass surveillance state. I'm very interested in financial freedom and privacy due to the fact that I've worked with people around the world from many different countries who live under authoritarian governments. And I have seen the problems that arise when governments have too much power in the financial arena, not just limited to devaluations and confiscations, but also financial surveillance. I've seen what happens when in particular countries, for example, Russia, when the government is monitoring your bank account, and that's really the only way you can receive money. There's not a whole lot you can do if a human rights group or a watchdog or even an entrepreneur working maybe on something risky. You're really constricted. Very hard for you to receive money or income from abroad, pay expenses, etc. Bitcoin comes along and offers a really different paradigm, different approach that's super groundbreaking and allows us to have this parallel economy. My background in working with people around the world really helped me understand how important Bitcoin will be here. And then on top of that, I'm also someone who's very aware of the limits of Bitcoin's privacy. And given that I'm looking at how it could be used by people in very risky situations, naturally, a couple of years ago, I started to look very closely at Lightning as a privacy and usability booster for Bitcoin. While I think it, generally speaking, remains very nascent and continues to grow and expand very slowly. 
and continues to be really hard to use, um, at least for me, in certain cases, if you're trying to use it the right way, non-custodially. I'm very excited about its long-term prospects and potential for helping improve Bitcoin privacy and bring it to more people. So yeah, that's the background. Okay. And then let's very briefly jump into when did Bitcoin enter the picture for you? Was that more recently or was that a while ago? Yeah. So I got this email from a friend of mine in 2013 and he's like, Hey, I still have it. Cause what I did one day is I looked at through my email and I was like, let, let me search for the first time Bitcoin popped up. Cause I just couldn't remember everything's such a blur. So somebody pitched me very specifically on this idea of could Bitcoin be used as a tool for donating to activists in the summer of 2013. And I, I had a conversation with the guy. It was certainly on my mind at that point, but I didn't really go down the rabbit hole, unfortunately. Kept it in my mind over the next year. I got very intrigued by the Mark Anderson piece in the New York Times, which I still think is one of the better mainstream articles about Bitcoin. And that summer, I spent some time with some Bitcoiners in like a festival near San Francisco called Ephemerile and started to have more conversations in that area. But still, the real power of it escaped me. Even that year, 2014, we started accepting Bitcoin donations for the Human Rights Foundation, which ended up being great for us. But I didn't really get it, get it for a while. The penny didn't really drop until someone asked me in 2016 if we could do some formal programming around human rights advocacy in Bitcoin. And a couple months later, we launched our first workshop. And that's when I started to really go down the rabbit hole, I would say. Spring 2017, price was going from like... 1,000 to 2,000, I, I really started diving in and it's been a wild ride. Okay, awesome. So how would you say that you made the progression from touching Bitcoin to eventually touching Lightning and exploring that world a bit? I got to say, it probably was watching Andreas Antonopoulos' videos. He, he was at least very bullish on Lightning back then and when Lightning was just an idea concept that people were tinkering with. I was following it and I was like, okay, this is really neat. I mean, obviously one of the things we want to do in Bitcoin is defeat chain analysis. And if we can move some of these smaller transactions where you're willing to take that risk of security for sort of smaller transactions off chain, then that can help really defeat chain analysis. So that was like the first reason I was very interested in it. Second reason I was very interested in is the additional privacy features where the data is sort of onion routed and even then, it was clear that people could do stuff like they are today with like multi-part payments, things like that, to fluster potential surveillance uh, in the Lightning Network. So those privacy features were really interesting to me as somebody who, who knows how important Tor is, for example, to activists and people who want to browse the internet safely. Thirdly, the whole kind of obviously scaling speed piece. I know they're kind of two different pieces, but the initial vision of Lightning that Taj Dreja and Joseph Poon pitched, or even Andrew Polstra, it was less about privacy, it was more about scaling. And I thought that was obviously very relevant in 2017. I was looking at that and I was kind of like, well, obviously, if we're going to have more people using Bitcoin in the future, we're going to want to use this approach as opposed to making the blocks bigger, which destroys decentralization. So I was super bullish on, on this particular way of doing things. And then finally, the speed piece is just great. It's really fun to show people. And the instant final settlement is pretty neat. I know Jack Mahlers is quite good at explaining the financial implications of that. There's a lot of aspects of Lightning that are interesting to me. I guess as a human rights activist, the privacy piece is key, but potential improvements in scaling, in speed, in settlement and in defeating on-chain analysis are all relevant. I wanted to take a quick step back and just ask you a little bit about something you said a moment ago about the Human Rights Foundation there. And when you said that when they started accepting Bitcoin, that really worked out for them. It's been a while since then. Has that continued to be the case? 
I remember at the time being like, really? Like someone wants to send us Bitcoin? And then having us having an internal conversation being like, okay, why not? And I can't remember what Bitcoin's price was at the time. It was certainly in the hundreds of dollars. I want to say it was below 500 bucks. We were like, all right, why not? It was in that bear market, although I certainly didn't know anything about Bitcoin's seasonal cycles. We were just kind of like, this is cool, fine. And we held on to it. We didn't really think much about it until a couple of years later. We were like, oh, all this like Bitcoin that we uh, we received, this is great. So it appreciated, obviously, in value against the dollar. And we were able to use it to fund some great programs. So I'm very happy about that. And then we continue to get Bitcoin donations today. It's a goal of mine to really help build out some of HRF's future programs with Bitcoin donations today that think of them as seeds that turn into trees later. Absolutely. Are you guys accepting Bitcoin over Lightning as well or just base chain Bitcoin right now? Yes, we have BTC Pay Server set up on our website. You can donate to HRF via Lightning. You can donate with PayJoin. It's pretty exciting. So we're trying to offer those options to folks who want to donate to us while preserving their privacy as much as possible. Even just avoiding address reuse is just a huge thing for nonprofits. It wasn't that long ago that including us, we would literally just paste an address on our website just because we didn't know any better. It is not super easy to understand why address for use is bad. You have to actually start learning about what is Bitcoin? How does it work? What are UTXOs? How would an adversary look at this for you to be pairing all these different addresses together through their shared interest of the Human Rights Foundation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But over the last couple of years, we've been fortunate enough to watch as BTC Pay Server has grown. And now we're certainly delighted to be using it as an open source payment processor. And it's just amazing that they're so privacy focused. And not only do they help us via providing these unique invoices, which are generally speaking, really hard for people to understand what's going on beyond the donor and the receiver. Whereas before, it would be very easy for anybody on the internet to just go to our website and look at the address and literally surveil it. That wouldn't necessarily de-anonymize the donors wouldn't necessarily tell them what we did with the Bitcoin depending on their and our OPSEC, but it wasn't great. But now it's like, no, you wouldn't even know where to start. If I was like, oh, you know, if I told you HRF was accepting Bitcoin, it's not like you'd even know what address to look at. That unique invoicing system that PTC PayServer provides is, is just very helpful for an organization like ours. And obviously the fact that you could donate with Lightning is also cool. So yeah, we've had some Lightning donations. I wouldn't say they've been huge, but there've been a bunch and it's always fun to see them come in. Awesome. I'll just throw it out there because I have so many feelings for BTC Pay Server. They're probably my favorite project out there, period, in Bitcoin land, not just Lightning, but across all of that because they give you so much in that little package. I run my podcast, I run my business. It gives me such an easy ability just to accept donations or anything like that. I don't have a lot of money. I'm not some big organization that has time and all this to do all that, but it was pretty easy. If anyone out there ever wants to mess with, that's probably one of the first places if you want to accept Bitcoin or Bitcoin over Lightning, I would recommend people go to. Moving on here a little bit, if you don't mind, I've heard of the Oslo Freedom Forum, but I don't really know what it is. Do you want to let me and the listeners know a bit more about that? Sure. Over the 80s and 90s and 2000s, a couple big global events popped up that became very big priorities for the influencers of the world in different industries. You had TED for folks in technology and investment and design and culture. You had Pop Tech for a while was a cool spot to go. You had Davos at the World Economic Forum for folks involved in finance, banking. For a long time, you had the Clinton Global Initiative, 
which was something that people went to for humanitarian work. There wasn't a big international platform for civil liberties and freedom. The founder of the Human Rights Foundation spotted this as an opportunity, and we decided to try and launch a platform and a space that could be this global gathering point for dissidents and people fighting authoritarianism. And that's what the Oslo Freedom Forum is. It's been a physical gathering point and brainstorming laboratory and workshop and catalyst that happens once a year in Norway that's been occurring every spring since 2009. So we're in the 12th year of it. Obviously, COVID has thrown a wrench into our plans to do something physical this spring, but we're hopefully going to have this thing happen later in the year or if necessary, early next year. It's a place where human rights activists and technologists and journalists get to go on stage and talk about their work and the influencers, the philanthropists, the policymakers the establishment folks, instead of being on stage telling everybody else what to do, they're in the audience listening, right? So it's like flips the Davos TED model on his head. It's pretty neat. And I really love it. It's a great event. It's very different, very unique. Very few events of that size and stature directly take on the Chinese government, for example. It's a lot of fun. You don't really hear words like tyrants or dictators tossed around at these big events. It's fun to have one that does. And we've globalized. We've done events in South Africa, in Taiwan, in Mexico City, in San Francisco, in New York. We're trying to grow that movement. It's been a place actually the last few years where some folks in the Bitcoin community have started to gather too, as we have this shared belief system in certain ways. Would you say that Bitcoin has become more relevant at these kinds of discussions and conversations across both of the things that you're doing here with the HRF and the Oslo Freedom Forum? Yeah, I would say Bitcoin's constantly becoming more relevant for everybody, this industry included. Five years ago, Bitcoin was known as a darknet tool for bad people. That was like the mainstream opinion about it. So it was understandable that human rights organizations were like questioning it or didn't understand it. Today, still beyond HRF, I mean, you're not really going to find very many other nonprofits that are super pro Bitcoin. I can't really think of any that beyond Coin Center, obviously, but they're a 501c4. So they're a lobbying organization. It's not like Amnesty International gets it. We're not there yet. It's been a long road, but I think it'll increasingly become clear, at least today or even over the last couple of years, when I talk to activists from different countries, they immediately understand when I'm like, hey, there's this money that's outside of government control. They're immediately interested in how it works and they want to learn more, as opposed to when you talk to somebody from from a Western society, they don't really care because they have money that works and they're like, this is sketchy. Why would you want to do this? I think your origin and where you come from matters in a huge way in terms of your open-mindedness towards Bitcoin. I would probably say that's very accurate. The next thing that I was going to touch on here was actually Silk Road. So I think that's apt here. My first interaction with Bitcoin was on Silk Road in 2011, to be honest. And it's hard to ignore Bitcoin at that point, when you're essentially using, I think they were calling it at the time, the Amazon of drugs. It was actually great marketing, right? Yeah, it was. Because that definitely convinced me to jump on there, even though I didn't know what PGP was, I didn't know what Bitcoin was, I didn't know all this gobbledygook. From there, from the fact that I was able to see this direct usability, this privacy use case, I really started to believe in at that point. I will admit to dropping off after I no longer needed drugs as much. The seed stayed with me after that and kept going with me. How important do you think that marketing was? You know, like you mentioned, that was really good marketing for Silk Road, but I think it was really good marketing for Bitcoin, or is that what you meant? What's interesting to consider is that there is no marketing department. Bitcoin's not a corporation or an organization. It's not like there's a concerted effort to market Bitcoin one way or another, but I think historians of Bitcoin have correctly pointed out that you can basically describe different eras of Bitcoin, ranging from its creation to when you started getting involved, which would be essentially like a computer science experiment, to 
that second era, which was incorrectly, I think, marketed as an anonymous tool for Silk Road and darknet markets. Now people hopefully know that this is not an anonymous system. Then you've had the whole Ethereum, ICO, blockchain, not Bitcoin, a competing set of narratives start to come in in 2014-15. And then you had the bubble, and now it's the legitimate financial asset with several hundred billion dollars net worth in the network. So there's been many different eras, but in that particular era, I think people started to realize that it could be used to route around government restrictions. I want to walk a careful line here because on the one hand, I think the drug war is a horrible policy and is largely to blame for why America has such a horrible prison problem, this plague where we have all these mainly young men being put in prison for nonviolent drug crimes. It's just total disaster. One of the biggest shames about being an American actually would be, I think, this this drug war prison industry. For people to be able to access marijuana, for example, without needing to worry as much about getting caught, I think was a cool thing. I know that Peter McCormick talks about this. This is someone in the space who's pretty well known. That's how he got into it is he was trying to buy some for his mom. Even though I appreciate why people are using it, let's just put it this way. It set back any ideas that anybody had about Bitcoin becoming more mainstream by about five years. Now, I'd actually argue that that's a good thing. I posted the other day something about how I think that Bitcoin's weirdness is like a big feature, not a bug. The fact that somehow it's gone from 10 cents to a dollar to $10 to $100 to $1,000 to $10,000 while basically being kind of ignored and shamed and shunned is really bizarre. Could only have been accomplished because Bitcoin is weird. If it wasn't weird, then the mainstream would have gotten involved way sooner and would have probably killed it or crushed it or like changed it to the point where it wouldn't be what it is. So I guess what I'm saying is not only do I appreciate why people started flocking to it, but it was such an important chapter in Bitcoin's history. I actually think that for all of the warts, it was actually useful because it kept Bitcoin weird for several years and unattractive and questionable, let's say. Meanwhile, people could build stuff on it and continue to hammer away at the decentralization and privacy features. The launch of the Lightning Network was initially conceived at a time when the most famous thing about Bitcoin was either the fake Satoshi Nakamoto guy that they dug out of the desert, California, or the Ross Ulbricht. All these amazing things that happened on Bitcoin, a lot of them happened during that time when the government and media were looking at it like some sort of crazy drug tool. It sounds like to me, the answer is to make a dark net or the Lightning Network in order to make it weird and get everyone (laughs) away from us for a while. Well, there's been some good shows on this lately. And again, the dark market is an interesting way of looking at it. I could also say that what's a dark market in a dictatorship would be like a market for books or ideas that are illegal. Generally speaking, Bitcoin is a tool for routing around governments and corporations. I think it continues to prove that. What's interesting is that this is one of the reasons why I think Lightning's just not really there yet, is that at least from what, what I can hear, what I can see, there's some good conversations on that Stephen Levera has had where he's got Chris Belcher on and there's some other folks. I think he mentioned this with the Waxwing and some other people who are pushing on Bitcoin privacy stuff, but there's like no lightning adoption in dark market. They're just not happening yet. And there are different reasons for that. I think people are realizing that centralized mixing services are really stupid, like the Alphabet thing. Hopefully people stop using that. And I think you're seeing an amazing uptick in the amount of people, amount of volume on, for example, Samurai or Wasabi. Uh, it looks like even this this person who mined some 2009 coins and is moving them is using Wasabi or something. You kind of deduce that, it looks like, which is just undeniably great. 
that privacy tools are becoming more popular. But at the end of the day, you're not really seeing, I mean, you're even seeing narrow being used a little bit, it seems from what they were saying. It's still a small percentage. Bitcoin is still dominant. No other privacy coin and no real lightning usage either. Just something to think about. You would imagine that if lightning really got to be robust enough to the point where people would trust it for serious stuff that that they would start using it in the dark net. The fact that they're not indicates either A, it's not ready for prime time or B, that they don't really trust the privacy guarantees right now. It kind of sounds like they know Bitcoin better and that's enough and that's we're just going to go with that for now. Maybe it's just a network effect thing. Maybe maybe the folks who are doing all the darknet stuff, maybe they're just not. I mean, look, most people aren't on Twitter and aren't on these like Telegram groups and aren't on message boards. Like the most people who use Bitcoin just aren't. Maybe we're looking at a biased sample size of people who understand who have heard about Lightning. Maybe the average Bitcoiner has not. Either way, we're just not there yet. That just helps us situate Lightning in its life cycle. We're at the very beginning here. Super, super early. Like it's not even really being used for arguably what its major initial use case would be. If Lightning is to sort of track Bitcoin's use cases, we're still in the, it's an interesting thing for computer scientists part. We're not in commerce. We're not in dark net markets. We're certainly not in financial markets. I think we're going to get to all those things. It just takes time. I've been running a MyNode and, which is awesome, by the way, shout out to the team who puts that thing together. But I've been using Zap to do some Lightning transactions using my full node. I tell you, it's not that easy. I was trying to buy something using Lightning. And of course, maybe it's just that I'm rusty or I'm not as familiar. You see the price tag, but you have to open a channel and make sure it's big enough to not only pay for the price, but also an additional buffer amount, which isn't really clear, at least in certain clients like Zap. Let's just put it this way. I got it done, but it was not super intuitive and took a long time. And I wasted a bunch of Bitcoin on fees opening these channels. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why we're just not quite there yet. I know that if you sit and make an effort out of it over a span of days and weeks, you can get these channels big enough and used enough that you get your familiarity with the platforms up to the point where it's easy for you. I know that people like Marty Bent talk about how it's just easy for them. For the average person probably out there on the dark market or certainly somebody like, let's say in my industry, like a human rights activist, we're not where we need to be for Lightning to be useful yet. Let's just put it that way. I could agree with that. I probably can't really point to a real world strong use case yet. Just the more novelty stuff at the moment, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, I bought something on a website and it was cool, but I'm excited for the day when there is more adoption, more usage, and we can reliably send and receive larger amounts with Lightning. I have to say there's some challenges and and certainly we're just going to have to see. I think a lot of these multi-part payment, I think a lot of these things that are happening in Lightning and things that are even on the Bitcoin based chain roadmap, like the Schnorr stuff potentially coming up. I think these are all really helpful for Lightning's privacy, meaning like if you're spying on the blockchain, I guess it'll be a lot harder for people to understand what's a Lightning transaction, what's a Lightning open channel, what's not. But I'm not really, the other Lightning stuff might end up being more important in terms of usability and channel usability, like refillability, that sort of stuff may end up being really important because honestly, we're getting to the point where with like coin joins, pay joins, like main chain Bitcoin, as we're going to see now with this dude, whoever mined these early coins, probably not going to get doxxed. So we're looking at a main chain Bitcoin case. And I understand it's obviously it was mined Bitcoin, but we're probably looking at a highly scrutinized situation where like all these journalists are trying to figure out who moved these coins and they probably won't be able to do it. That's where Bitcoin privacy is right now. So I think that's probably just another reason you don't see more lightning usage. 
Absolutely. I want to take that attitude you have here now. It seems like you're short-term skeptical, but long-term bullish kind of thing. Is that what I'm picking up from your article? Yeah. We'll kind of see where I am in terms of my projections that I had in that article. I mean, we'll see. I thought that there might be some lightning integration into Cash App at some point this year. That remains to be seen. I mean, they're moving at such a fast pace. Just the other day, you can now do auto buys and everything is priced in Satoshis. It seems like they're paving the way, but if we could get some lightning functionality in Cash App, okay. It's like, then we're talking and then we're on the roadmap of where I think this starts to play out. I really think that once you start getting some major platforms accepting it, especially in the gaming sector, I always thought that Jack Mahler's had a good vision of this. Imagine if you could just have your Steam account and integrate Lightning. I don't know. I think that's a really great use case for it where you can like be buying game upgrades and in-game items and it could be used in that ecosystem. I think it, over the next couple of years, if you get a couple big name platforms incorporating, I, mean, I think fantasy football is a really interesting thing. I've had some conversations actually with folks who run those platforms and there are a lot of issues. This is an industry that hundred million people play. Many, many billion dollar industry. You have to deposit money and it takes many days and then to withdraw takes months because of the way all the banking regulation is. Lightning could be such a game changer for that. I can't name the platform, but I can say that at least one of the more popular fantasy football apps is experimenting with a Lightning wallet, which is pretty cool. Again, I think I'm still bullish on being relatively accurate on this prediction of some bigger adoption coming maybe at the end of this year. I want to ask about that because obviously we had some people disagree that it's Black Swan per se, but just for the sake of this conversation, the Black Swan of Corona came in and ruined your predictions at least a little bit, I would probably say. How much do you think your predictions changed because of what coronavirus set into motion this year? Well, I think if anything, the predictions I was making about how governments are going to restrict people's freedoms are probably accelerating a little bit due to Corona. Honestly, I think it's more bullish for Lightning. A lot of stuff that we're going to do is going to be more digital, more remote, more online, more done with avatars, more VR, more remote working. And I can't imagine a better ecosystem for people to be messing around with Lightning, can you? No, honestly, I probably think the same thing. I try not to say it out loud too much because I try to avoid being the hype person. You can jinx it. At the end of the day, the usability is not there yet, but it's getting there. It's a gradually then suddenly thing. One of those things where Maybe over this next six months, the usability continues to just chip away, chip away. It's really about getting what is now custodial convenience and usability in a non-custodial format. And I know they can get it there. It's just a matter of time. So if the non-custodial lightning usage can approximate, obviously nothing I've said describes my experience as the custodial lightning. I don't really use custodial lightning because I think it's like a betrayal of the idea. I think it's kind of stupid. But obviously if you open up a custodial lightning account, yeah, it's super cool. It works really fast and it's excellent, but it's not your keys. It kind of defeats the purpose of the idea. So I'm talking, even if just getting where we are today with custodial lightning apps, if we could in six to eight months be there with the non-custodial ones, we're ready to go, I feel. Sure. I guess if I'm being incredibly honest right now, I'm probably going to say the UX is not going to significantly change in the next 12 months. Might be the case. We'll see. I would love to be wrong on that. You've got Square, one of the biggest payment companies in the world, creating a nonprofit and having that nonprofit choose to work on a Lightning developer toolkit is pretty massive. 
This is true. A lot of this stuff's happening in the background. I think the next couple of years are still very ripe for Lightning to move forward, to be adopted in probably these niche areas, not for its state censorship resistance or its privacy features, but rather probably for its speed and final settlement features. That's probably why it's going to get adopted by some of these companies. As I was saying in the article, they'll go out and they'll fight for it. If it's going to allow them to make more money and more money faster, they're going to go lobby for their ability to use it. They're not going to mess around. If even they can get a marginal improvement upon a competitor by launching a lightning wallet first, if we're talking a gambling website or a fantasy football website or a gaming website, they're going to go and fight for that. They don't need us to do it. Yeah, definitely. I want to touch on the lightning gaming thing that you mentioned multiple times here, because I've definitely talked about that on previous episodes like with Christian Moss and with Lightning Koala, Lightning developers that are making games in the space. They all seemed, even before the coronavirus thing happened, this was months before that, their main thing was that Lightning and things like it and Bitcoin, etc. are going to make it very easy to make income from home, like the whole Twitch effect or that kind of self-made money thing. It's just going to become more common, more popular And with Bitcoin and Lightning, with the fact that you can custody your own money, take care of that entire stack, it's yours. You don't have to worry about Patreon or whoever. Obviously, the UX is not there like we were saying. In a more ideal world, do you see that being even easier of a thing in the short term, medium term? Yeah, let's just go back 20 years. I was playing Final Fantasy XI in the year, we'll call it 2002, 18 years ago. And you log into this virtual world and you have your avatar who is not connected to your real identity in any way, shape or form. Square Enix knew, but ideally you would be like, I didn't wish you knew. That wasn't necessary for you to enjoy the game. At the end of the day, they didn't really need to know who you were. They were collecting information about you for whatever reason. You had your avatar and you were in this big virtual world with thousands of other people. And there was an in-game economy, which ran like a free market. What a lot of people ended up doing was buying and selling these in-game items for real world prices. And the whole thing became very complicated. I could just imagine that situation where you have an avatar personality not connected to your identity, now having the native money to be able to be used in such a way where it's real money, digitally scarce money that can be sent instantly across any gaming platform that settles immediately, that helps protect your anonymity or at least your pseudonymity to a huge extent as an avatar or as your Steam profile. That to me is pretty cool. That's kind of what I mean by lightning gaming. What would you say to people that say that games don't need censorship resistance? Yeah, sure. I don't think any of these games are going to be decentralized. I don't think we're going to have games on a blockchain. I'm very skeptical of that. I didn't really say censorship resistance. I don't think that these game developers or the ecosystems that run the games would even allow for censorship resistance. Even if you bought something in Lightning, if you did it illicitly or you were hacking, they would just confiscate the item. I mean, the item is still going to be controlled by them. It's more about the idea of speed instantaneous settlement of something that's actually scarce and real. That's the idea that's so powerful to me. It's more about like the speed final settlement slash the ability to pair your, let's say, pseudonymous online account that you might have on Steam. Let's say your name is COVID1984 or something like that. And you've got a profile on three different games. Your ability to have like a shared wallet that is smooth and cohesive throughout would be pretty neat. Today, you've got to have your bank account, your credit card. You've got to have different accounts on different games. The whole thing's ridiculous. I could start to see this being super interesting for stuff like Twitch as well. I know we're getting to the point where we're not sure about micropayments, or at least I'm not sure. The Lightning community 
maybe sure about micropayments, that obstacle can be completed and jumped over. Then all of a sudden we're unlocking a whole new area, the streaming money idea, which obviously is like such a good fit for Twitch, live gaming, this whole area where we're being moved into by COVID, where we're going to be looking at virtual attending of events, virtual sports, things like that. I couldn't imagine a better fit. I think the demand is going to be in place for something like Lightning over the next three, four, five years. So we'll just have to see if it develops. I think that the economics of the micropayments to me is the biggest thing I'm worried about in Lightning. If that can be addressed, then everything's on the table. I've definitely heard that argument on the podcast quite a bit. People seem to think Lightning is not long for micropayments that eventually it'll get priced out and it'll have to go to layer three or layer four, perhaps. Do you have any particular opinion about that at all? It's just a sentiment that has been growing among serious people in the last six months or so. I think you could start addressing it with some of these tweaks that people are coming up with at companies like Lightning Labs. They're introducing different ways to refill your account without necessarily having to open a channel, which is very, very important. If fees get to the point where opening a Lightning channel is going to cost you a lot, it's going to be a problem. We'll have to see. kind of feel like from what I've seen so far, people will figure out a clever way to get around it. Because everything else about the net screams like it's a good fit for this more online world we're going into. And that's really important because there's been a lot of scholarship over the last two decades that points to this idea that we're eventually just going to lose privacy in the real space. I mean, maybe not in our homes, but basically everywhere else. There's just so many surveillance cameras coming online, so much big data, so much AI, so much ability to understand where everybody is. But we have the opportunity to keep digital privacy in this digital world. Even though we may lose our privacy in the real world, we may be able to keep it digitally. I think that Lightning is just such a great tool to try to support right now to see if it can be that substrate for that experience for you to be able to attend a virtual event or tip your favorite entertainer or use it as part of your gaming identity or do e-commerce, small payments, all these things it could be, it could be really brilliant for. We just don't know if the economics and the technology will get there. I think we talked a good amount about the potential upsides, the potential ideal future, all of that. Could you touch on your doubts about Lightning and the doubts of the future of it and things like that? Any potential skepticism there? Yeah, I think I've hinted at it. I think that micropayments are such a core part of Lightning's proposition and value proposition of the Lightning Network in many ways is micropayments and streaming money because we all know that eventually payments on Bitcoin are going to get very expensive or at least expensive to the point where you wouldn't want to be making more than like one a day, probably more like one a week or once a month. Ultimately, I believe that you're not really going to be doing Bitcoin transactions outside of very unique, rare transactions that require insane levels of security or you're essentially buying a house today would be about as common as I think a main chain Bitcoin transaction might be in the far future. Something like Lightning is really important and part of that value proposition, I would argue even more so than scaling or privacy is in this idea of micropayments and in streaming money. That's the dream. I think there's legitimate skepticism on where I think most people even in the space would acknowledge that this is a real concern in the economics of that. Can the Lightning Network, not even technologically, but economically, can it support micropayments in a world where on chain fees are really large. I would say that's probably my biggest concern. Much more so than like, am I worried that entities will commandeer major hubs and start to de-anonymize users? I'm not that concerned about that right now, just because I'm seeing people figure out ways around that. It looks like the developers, the whole multi-part payment thing is freaking brilliant. I'm seeing developers really come out with stuff that seems to be really addressing the privacy issues, which is awesome. The economic realism of micropayments and streaming payments, it just remains to be seen. 
Okay. At this point, I think I'm going to move off of Bitcoin and Lightning for the most part and talk about general world events because I think you're pretty well informed about those things here. And I want to share a little bit with my audience about that here. The one thing I had written down as a contra ideal narrative you laid out here a little bit for Lightning is maybe talking about Demolition Man. Have you ever seen that movie before? No, I have not seen Demolition Man. Okay, so I guess you can't enjoy it as much as I can in this instance, but I'll briefly share with you and the listeners what the parallels are. It's 2030 or so in the movie. It's Sylvester Stallone. It was in the 90s, but then he's frozen until the 2030s. And in 2030s, everyone has a chip in them to track their location at all times. Everything that's bad for you is illegal. So cigarettes are illegal. Spicy foods are illegal. Everything you can think of is illegal. Abortion's illegal. Pregnancy's illegal. You have to have a license. Basically, the end of privacy. You were hinting at it earlier. My vision of it or my answer to it is still this Bitcoin-y ethos that even if the world goes in that direction of privacy going away, Bitcoin would still be the answer of like, we're going to have our chips, but the chips are going to be open source chips and we're going to have deeper control in it or whatever the case might be. Do you see a similar cat and mouse game where authoritarians move this direction and then the free people or whatever you want to call them move and are the mice that dart around them? You know, what picture do you see in that framework there? Obviously, I think that given my work and what I've seen in in countries like China, through the eyes of the dissidents and activists and journalists that I'm working with and get the pleasure to interview and try to help, you're seeing unprecedented amount of technology being marshaled in the name of surveillance and social engineering. While we're not at a microchip today in 2020, you said Demolition Man takes place in 2030. I would not rule out that by 2030, all Chinese citizens may need to have a microchip. I think that is entirely on the table. In fact, it's probably from what I understand, this sort of thing's already sort of being tested and experimented on in ethnic minority areas like Xinjiang and Tibet, perhaps not with microchips, but certainly with bracelets. And you're seeing the Chinese government experiment on this more rapidly due to COVID as an excuse, where again, you don't have chips, but people have this color code on their phone that dictates where they can go. So I think that's going to be a permanent fixture of society. Over time, as cell phones merge into wearables and then chips, you could easily by 2030, I think, see a world where that's actually a reality. And I'm very concerned about that my interest in things like Bitcoin and encryption stem from the fact that I think that's sort of going to happen. I think people need an alternative, a way to fight back, a way to challenge the government and these corporations and a way to assert their individuality for us to be able to thrive as a species. I think that's really important. You were on Tales from the Crypt at the beginning of April. You did a really good job of laying out where things are headed, the surveillance and a lot of the authoritarian abuses that are happening throughout the world, especially in China and places near China. Do you want to give maybe like a general update that speaks on where we've been in the last two months, basically? Governments around the world have been silver plattered an opportunity to move ahead with aggressive emergency power concepts and ideas that once may have been unpalatable or unsellable or unimplementable due to COVID. The Hungarian leader, Viktor Orban, was unable to consolidate his dictatorship until COVID, and then now all of a sudden he's ruling by decree. The Chinese government was not able to get to the level of social engineering they had wanted to, I think. And then all of a sudden, due to COVID, now you have the popularization, legitimate popularization, from what I understand of this idea of color coding to keep people safe. And then of course, even outside of authoritarian societies the world over, you've got a total acquiescence of this Apple Google contact tracing app 
which no one's talking about it, but it's in the middle of being rolled out to like 22 countries, apparently in Europe in the next six weeks. Okay. Yeah. I know that it's going to be like user opt-in, all the data is going to be on the device and all these different things. But like this thing has serious vulnerabilities. It has serious issues and it's leading directly towards a normalization of mass surveillance, even in open societies. So I would say that the situation is looking pretty grim. In that kind of world, what can everyday people do to combat against the tide of that, but also just to secure themselves? Because I think Matt O'Dell said on the podcast before, you can't help other people until you secure your own mask. I said on that show, actually, I think there's three things people can do right away immediately to help. One is use encryption, use signal. Take more and more of your communications off of obviously compromised platforms, whether it be WhatsApp or Telegram or whatever, and move them onto Signal where it's like, okay, yeah, unless your device physically has been compromised, like if the government doesn't have your private key, they can't see what you say. Maybe they're looking at the metadata and they're like, okay, this, this phone number, which belongs to Alex, sent this message at this time, which had this many kilobytes of data or whatever. Great, fine, they can like see that, but they can't see what I said. And that's a very, very powerful. So do that, use encryption, use Bitcoin, learn about it, understand that it is an escape valve. It's unstoppable, unconfiscatable, permissionless. You can use it to opt out of whatever's happening in the financial system, whether or not you think your authorities are doing a good job or not. There may be some unintended consequences of what's happening to be very, um, let's say, euphemistic about it. If for whatever reason you're not sure about what's going to happen with the legacy economy in the next six to 12 months, you can opt out and you can put some of your energy and time into Bitcoin as opposed to into an asset that is connected to the legacy economy. That's really interesting. Third thing is just be kind. I think you're seeing a lot of this already, but this appreciation of family and community and local local ties, local groups seems to be heightened right now. But I think with these three things, you can actually start to make immediate difference in your life. The more people that use these three things will contribute to wider social change. How can people, quote unquote, like us, people that are into Bitcoin, into Lightning, that are into privacy, how can we get people that are far more resistant to these things? Because I've definitely tried to get my friends on the signal. Some of them have, some of them have not, and other types of apps and things like that. And Bitcoin has always been a very hard sell for most people. I've learned to stop doing that and just let them come to me kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the way to do it. Bitcoin has something, and I say Bitcoin, I mean everything in the Bitcoin ecosystem, which includes Lightning. Bitcoin is something that encryption as, as a general concept doesn't have. The encryption for, let's say, peer-to-peer messaging is really powerful and people understand the importance of it and they want privacy. However, it's still something that most people are like, oh, it's such a pain to use that they're like, whatever, I just, you know, I'm not going to use it. Bitcoin has this number go up thing where over time people are going to be forced into it in a way that like you're not really forced into using a private messenger. Bitcoin will demand your attention at some point. That's kind of the most exciting thing of all is that this crazy cypherpunk technology that gives people censorship resistant, pseudonymous, global, borderless, no ID required, very hard to surveil, constantly growing and improving payment network. This crazy idea is being promoted by like Wall Street titans and all these establishment figures is really bizarre. They're getting into it for its value proposition as a store of value for investing. And I think that's very crucial part of Bitcoin is its digital scarcity and that over time, it'll probably become a lot more valuable against things like the dollar. But it's just wild to me to see this happen. And I, I think that's why we don't need to worry too much about like promoting Bitcoin, like Bitcoin will promote itself just fine.
I think that's a really good place to end it. Uh, do you want to let the listeners know how they can find you on the internet as well as the organizations you represent? Sure. The best place is probably to reach me on Twitter at Gladstein, G-L-A-D-S-T-E-I-N. Check out the Human Rights Foundation at hrf.org. And uh, yeah, give me a shout. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate you joining me and we'll see you next time. Boom. That was the 30th episode of the Latin Junkies podcast. Did you learn anything from this podcast? Are you basically pretty terrified of the possible future that we have in front of us? Definitely including the recent events like the riots and all the things like that. I'm definitely going to be thinking about for the next couple weeks. In the meantime, I don't think there's much more to say other than... I'll see you on the Lightning Network.